Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Connecticut's shoreline towns and cities are destinations for residents and tourists, but their histories as important ports also involve reckoning with a dark past, a connection to the transatlantic slave trade. Middletown and New London are among more than 50 sites in the U.S. recognized as a site of memory of the UNESCO Slave Route Project. Today where we live, we learn about New London's acknowledgement of its past and the work led by local historians to educate its residents and the greater public about this lesser-known history. Joining me now on Zoom is Tom Shook, a New London native with a lifelong interest in local history and social justice, and he's been researching the city's role in the slave trade with New London landmarks. Tom, welcome to our show. Uh, Thank you, Lucy. Thank you for having me. And listeners can join as well. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Tom, I mentioned you're a lifelong New London resident. And so can you talk about the significance of this new UNESCO slave route project site of memory in your city and describe it for our listeners? Okay. Uh, well, first of all, it's, uh, it's the 16th site of the uh, what's known as the New London Black Heritage Trail, which is a project that started uh, two or three years ago when uh, we discovered that there were many uh, stories uh, of black history that had never been talked about in New London. The first 15 uh, was a a single project, and uh, that was unveiled in October of uh, 2021. And then uh, parallel to this, the UNESCO group had cited New London as a site of memory, which means it was a site where it's documented that a, uh, uh, there was a slaving voyage that went from New London to Africa and returned to New London. It's one of two uh, such towns in Connecticut that are uh, verified as being sites of memory. Uh, and uh, in this case, there is uh, one specific voyage on a ship called the Speedwell, uh, captained by a guy named Timothy Miller, who delivered, uh, initially he embarked to 95 uh, African captives, uh, 74 had survived the Middle Passage and arrived uh, here in New London. And what this does is it ties in uh, a, a global aspect to the New London Black Heritage Trail, where the pr- previous 15 stories are pretty much confined to local history. This one uh, gives us uh, a link to New London's role in, in the global picture. So it's, it's, real, it's real important. You mentioned that there are now two UNESCO site of memories in Connecticut, the other being Middletown, which we've talked about on the show a few years ago. I understand there was a ceremony, Tom, in July at Amistad Pier, um, which was a notable acknowledgement from the city about its role in the transatlantic slave trade. Tell us about that day. 
Yeah, I think New London has done some, 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 uh, taken some significant steps in acknowledging their role. Uh, the uh, the ceremony itself was organized by uh, a committee uh, headed by Curtis Goodwin, who was also the inspired leadership of the uh, Black Heritage Trail, and uh, they brought in uh, some uh, a, a number of speakers. They brought in a representative from the uh, Sites of Memory uh, uh, group uh, who came from. Uh, Tennessee. Uh, they also had uh, African uh, dancing and drumming. And uh, very symbolically at the end, uh, we were fortunate enough because of the circumstances of this voyage to have the names of 21 of the captives who were actually on board the ship. And those are the African names. This is very unusual. Uh, there's, there's a website with a database called the slavevoyages.org that uh, documents 36,000 uh, slaving voyages uh, to from Africa to to the Western Hemisphere. Very very few of those have the actual names of the people who were involved. But in this case, uh, the person who was part owner of the ship died, and the all of the captives who were a part of his uh, that he owned were part of his inventory, so they preserved all the names. And we were able to read the names of the people as we uh, placed flowers in the, uh, in the Thames River. And of course, it's very symbolic because the plaque stands on, uh, on the Amistad Pier, which is another story, but uh, it's on the Amistad Pier in New London, and it's on the river, and it, it, the visual is that you're looking out into the river, which uh, enters the Atlantic Ocean, which joins to Africa. So it's a, it's a very, it was a very moving and symbolic ceremony, uh, beautifully done. Um, uh, very, very, very memorable. A lot of research done by you and others to get to that moment, uh, Tom, um, as you mentioned, commemorating the arrival of this ship Speedwell in 1761, carrying 74 enslaved Africans, uh, as you mentioned, 21 others who died during that voyage. This is just a part of New London's prominent role in the transatlantic slave trade. That might surprise some listeners when we think about the role of New England. What do you say to that? Yes. Uh, as a New London native, I was surprised when I started to discover this because, uh, uh, you know, I grew up learning New London history, which was basically uh, Nathan Hale, Benedict Arnold, uh, something called the West Indies trade and the whaling industry. And we never really knew what the West Indies trade was, other than that it was a source of uh, prosperity and, and uh, you know, lots of maritime uh, history uh, connected to New London. But it wasn't until recently that we started to uncover what that trade really was. Uh, and there's a, a, you know, it sounds so innocuous, uh, people shipping goods. Well, it turns out that the West Indies trade uh, and New London in particular uh, was the focus of that. The, the farms, fisheries and forests of New England were the provisioners and the enablers of the Caribbean, uh, well, they call them plantations. Uh, they were in, in fact, they were slave labor camps where people were literally worked to death. And uh, they would not have survived without the support of the farms, fisheries and, and whatnot uh, from New England. They would not have prospered and neither would New England have prospered as well. Bernard Balin, who was a considered from Harvard, he's the uh, 
considered the dean of colonial historians, uh, described New England as having uh, uh, gained the highest standard of living the world had ever seen based on its trade with the, with the West Indies. And we're talking about uh, commerce that uh, began somewhere around 1650 and lasted right through until the Civil War and beyond. So you're talking 100, 200 years of, of commerce. And the commerce was not only just uh, shipping goods, but it was uh, shipbuilding. Uh, they were building ships for the trade. Uh, New London uh, had its, its first uh, shipbuilders in 1651, 1652, and they engaged in that trade. Uh, so there's a long history. And the other thing that people don't know about is that they think of slavery uh, as something that happened, you know, down south. Uh, they don't realize uh, many people were surprised to learn that there were slaves in Connecticut. Well, the fact of the matter is, uh, slave, African slavery is documented as early as 1638. Okay, that's that's eight years before New London was even founded. Okay, there were documented slaves in New Haven, uh, and slavery existed uh, in Connecticut from 1638 until 1848, when it was finally abolished. The last New England state to abolish slavery, so it existed for 210 years. Now, you have people like uh, William Lloyd Garrison, uh, the famous abolitionist who referred to Connecticut as the Georgia of New England in a very unflattering uh, you know, compliment. Uh, but the fact of the matter is uh, slavery existed in Connecticut for 210 years, almost twice as long as slavery existed in Georgia. Georgia wasn't founded until 1732, I think. Uh, slavery was outlawed until 1750. Slavery was never outlawed in Connecticut until 1848. And slavery ended in Georgia in 1865. So that's a period of about 115 years, where in Connecticut it existed for 210 years. And it's, that's important. Uh, that's important to highlight, Tom. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, and we also, when we think about um, slavery in New England, I understand New London once had the highest percentage of enslaved people anywhere in New England. Can you give us an idea of the numbers here? That's that's correct. There's a book out called uh, it's called the, the title is The Negro in Colonial New England by Lorenzo J. Green, 1620 to 1676. That covers the dates. And he did extensive research. He came out in the I think in the 1940s or so. And he cites New London County as the greatest slaveholding section. This is in 1774. New London was the greatest slaveholding section in New England, with twice as many enslaved people as any other county in Massachusetts or Connecticut. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's a startling number because uh, I had no idea of that. And they listed by towns. He goes into great detail. The largest uh, uh, slaveholding town in Connecticut was New London, followed by Stonington, followed by Groton. Then two towns downstate, I think Stratford and Fairfield, and then Norwich and Lyme. Those were the greatest uh, numbers of, of slaves. And percentage-wise, uh, over all of New England, the percentage was something like a 2.3% enslaved. Uh, in New London, the percentage was 9.8%. That means 9.8% of the people in New London were enslaved people. Who knew this? I don't remember ever this being discussed in any of my New London local history classes anywhere, ever.
And that's why we Surprise. love to talk about it. That's why we love to talk about it on this show. Tom Shook is our guest, a New London native, again, talking about um, his research and uh, the efforts of others to uncover and acknowledge the city of New London's role in the transatlantic slave trade. Again, uh, New London is a new UNESCO slave route project site of memory. You can join us, find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. We started talking about the Speedwell that came here again, carrying enslaved Africans in 1761, uh, but through your research and others, you've been able to identify other voyages uh, with a connection to New London. Can you tell us about it? Sure. Uh, this, this research is complicated, by the way, uh, thanks to a guy named Benedict Arnold. Uh, in uh, 1781, Benedict Arnold uh, paid a visit to New London, and uh, as I like to say, he did a little redecorating downtown, <laughs> and he little. burned uh, 145 buildings uh, as retaliation against the privateering that was going on during the American Revolution. Uh, the first building that he burnt was the Custom House. Uh, New London was the custom house for, for Connecticut, which meant it was the repository for all of the maritime records uh, dating back to the earliest days. Uh, you know, New London has records. I've been in the New London property records vaults, uh, and they have records that go back to 1646, uh, which was at the time New London was founded. So there were maritime records uh, prior to 1781 that were just totally destroyed. So any when we try to find, uh, you know, to learn about the history of New London, we have to go to other sources, to account books and journals and uh, uh, ports on the other end of the voyage uh, to, to uncover this. But in the course of this, I mentioned the uh, the slave voyages dot uh, org database which is an incredible resource with you know 36,000 voyages so I, I enlisted the help of my friend dr Google and I did some searches uh, on that and I came up with uh, about 40 more voyages that have a connection to New London in one way or another. Either the captain was from New London, the ship was registered to New London, the voyage started or finished in New London, or it was included in the itinerary. So this gives you an indication of New London's involvement that was much more than just the Speedwell. And by the way, the Speedwell was uh, kind of an anomaly because that was a voyage that went to Africa and returned directly to New London. Most of the slave trading that took place in New London was on a much more a much smaller basis. It was part of the West Indies trade, uh, so ships were uh, coming and going uh, with smaller quantities. Uh, there's some documentation that says between I think it's 17. 17 and 1760, they uh, recorded the cargo of uh, the voyages that were uh, uh, around the New England, and they found that 79% of the cargo of the ships that for whom they, they had the entire cargo listed, 79% of those ships uh, included human cargo as part of their cargo. Uh, now they would have cotton and molasses and rum and uh, sugar, uh, of course, and, and also uh, human cargo. I have about 40 of those voyages uh, that are connected, and they include some very prominent names in New London, names like Saltonstall. Uh, we have schools named for Saltonstall, names like Mumford. Uh, we have coves and streets named for them, uh, Winthrop's, uh, Shaw's, uh, very, very uh, surprisingly prominent uh, people that were involved in one way or another. 
Again, you're listening uh, to Where We Live here on Connecticut Public Radio. My guest, Tom Shook, a New London native with a lifelong interest in local history and social justice. We're talking about how the city of New London, through the research of local historians like Tom and others, uh, acknowledging its role in the transatlantic slave trade. You know, coming up, Tom, we're going to talk about the role of education, right? So it's it's good to acknowledge uh, that there was this connection uh, to the transatlantic slave trade, the number of enslaved people that once lived here. Uh, in our state, but also uh, the opportunity to educate the public, including young people, about history. And we're going to be hearing from one of the site administrators at the Hempstead Houses. But I'm wondering if you can talk about the collaboration uh, that either you've had with New London uh, Public Schools or what you hope to see um, through all this research being uncovered. Well, it's interesting. When 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 this first uh, started, it started with a story about a guy named uh, Ichabod Pease, which I stumbled on uh, while doing some research about New London education. And I learned about uh, an 81-year-old man who started a school for black children in New London in 1837. And I thought, geez, I've never, never heard of this guy. Who is this guy? Uh, it turns out that uh, he was a, an immense, uh, formerly enslaved person. Uh, he had uh, gotten an education and uh, it was, uh, this occurred in the middle of a, a controversy. This was in the 1830s, the late 1830s. And that was when the abolition movement was coming to a head uh, and creating a, a tremendous amount of division and controversy all across the country uh, to the point where the New London, the parents in New London, uh, New London, by the way, was heavily anti-abolition at the time, uh, pro-slavery, uh, which again is surprising to people. And, and again, the reason for that, the driving force behind that was economics. There were 150 some uh, textile mills in Connecticut. Uh, the economy of Connecticut depended at that point, this you know, in the 19th century, depended on the on the cotton industry, and any movement to abolish slavery would jeopardize would jeopardize them. So there was a tremendous uh, controversy, uh, and, and the parents in New London were concerned that they they were educating the black students with the white students, and the school board didn't know what to do. So Ichabod P stepped forward and said, I'll run a school for the black children out of my house. They turned him down. Uh, he went back a second time. And this time they agreed to get pay him $50 to do that. And he started the school. He was 81 years old at the time. I thought, this is amazing. How many 81-year-olds start a school uh, for, for young kids, uh, you know, at that age. So uh, we, we said, we, we need to recognize this guy. Uh, we need to tell his story. We need, uh, and, and it turned out that uh, we gave a, uh, a presentation and one of the people in the audience was a guy named Curtis Goodwin. And he was inspired to hear this story. And he basically said, how come I've never heard of this? This is a, uh, he's a young black man who was, uh, who would, uh, was about to run for city council. And uh, when he, he decided to run for city council, he got elected and he made this part of his mission that he wanted to provide the story of Ichabod Pease to the children of New London, of, of all races, because this guy is a hero and we should know about him. And yet we've, we've, you know, the story has been, has been buried. That began uh, the, the Ichabod Pease plaque and that led to the Black Heritage Trail uh, with many other stories of similar uh, courage and resilience and perseverance and, and excellence that uh, have, you know, had never been told in New London before. So it's all, it's all uh, geared uh, to, uh, I mean, Curtis had said, how come I never heard this story in school? 
And it's not fair that the kids that are growing up today don't know these stories. We need to tell these stories. So that's that's what drove it. Yeah, we had a chance to speak to former city council member Curtis K. Goodwin uh, last fall before the unveiling of New London's Black Heritage Trail. I should mention, listeners can learn more at our website about this trail, ctpublic.org slash where we live. We started talking about the UNESCO Slave Route Project site of memory, the 16th prominent stop on this trail, uh, Tom. Uh, I wanted you to tell us a little bit more about your collaboration with New London High School and Hempstead descendants you discovered that were students? Uh, actually, one of the Hempstead, one, one, one of the teachers at New London High School is a Hempstead descendant. Uh, and she runs a class up there. Her name is uh, Linda Pfeiffer. And she uh, invited me, when she heard the story, she invited me to come in. And so I've been in there, I don't know, half a dozen times or so, maybe a few more, uh, to share some of these stories. And uh, uh, we actually did a uh, the first uh, guided tour. Uh, th- this was based on uh, some research I did on, on the Green Book. You're probably familiar with the Green Book that was produced as a travel guide back in 1937 to 1967 uh, by a guy named Victor Green. And uh, it turns out that there are, and most people associate the Green Book and with Jim Crow, with, with this, again, with the South. Uh, but it turns out that uh, when I was doing my research, I found 10 sites in New London that were listed in the Green Book over that period of time. And I was amazed uh, because I had never heard of that before. Uh, so uh, I went in and spoke with the group at, uh, at New London High and they said, geez, could you give us a tour? <laughs> so I thought, why not? So we did. We, it was a field trip for the kids. Uh, it was great. Uh, they arranged a school bus and we had about 20 kids. And we did a, a whole morning and into the afternoon. And the kids were just absolutely fascinated by it because they had never heard these stories before. It was, a, it was a great time. And I hope that that's something that we can incorporate somehow. Uh, I know we've done, uh, uh, Linda has done quite a bit in incorporating some of the stuff into her curriculum. Uh, but there's a, a, a tremendous uh, interest in it. And there's a, a, a tremendous opportunity for people to uh, to learn the, some of the history that, uh, you know, it's uh, you have to read between the lines to find it. Uh, and it's, a you know, it's finally time that it's that it's coming out. And, and I can't tell you uh, the enthusiasm and the response of the kids. It was a, it was a it was a great uh, experience. Coming up where we live, we're going to learn more about New London's Black Heritage Trail. Again, more information is on our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live, including pictures of that ceremony back in July, where the city of New London acknowledged again its role in the transatlantic slave trade on Amistad Pier. Tom Shook, it's been a pleasure to speak with you. Again, he's a New London native, doing a lot of research in the city's role in the slave trade with New London landmarks. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Lucy. It's a pleasure. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Do you live in New London? What's your reaction to the efforts by residents like Tom Shook and former councilman Curtis Goodwin to uncover the city's lesser-known history? After the break, we talk to more local historians and learn how Amistad Pier is just one stop on New London's Black Heritage Trail. We take your questions, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Historians help us understand the stories of our past. And in New London, it was the work of local historians and leaders, including former Councilman Curtis Goodwin, who led efforts to highlight the city's connections to slavery. We just heard how New London erected a plaque at Amistad Pier this summer, marking the arrival of the slave ship, the Speedwell, in 1761. New London native Tom Shook shared that at one point, New London had the highest percentage of enslaved people anywhere in New England. What questions do you have about Connecticut's early reliance on slavery? You can join us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. The UNESCO site of memory along Amistad Pier is the 16th stop on the New London Black Heritage Trail. For more, joining us now on Zoom is Lonnie Braxton II. He's a historian of black history who's been working on New London's Black Heritage Trail. Lonnie, welcome back to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. It was really fascinating to learn more about the Speedwell and uh, the significance of this UNESCO site in New London. You spoke at the dedication when this plaque was erected uh, back in July. Can you tell us what you shared? Well, what I shared basically was uh, how important it was uh, that we would actually remember those people. And one of the things that was most moving for me, and it appeared uh, for some of those who were there, was that uh, I grew up in Mississippi and Uh, My grandparents were uh, somewhat uh, uh, elderly when I was born. And I was one of those kids who followed the older people around and like listen to their stories. And when I was thinking about what I was going to say uh, uh, at the dedication, uh, it reminded me of a story that I would hear my grandparents and some of my older aunts and uncles tell. And it was about uh, an enslaved woman and she was working and chopping cotton in the fields and she had her little baby strapped to her back and as she's chopping the baby would keep crying and each time she would stop to try and calm the baby down the overseer would start yelling at her keep working keep working and strike her with this rod and he struck her so hard that she fell to the ground and as the overseer was standing over her with this rod yelling get up get up get up it was witnessed by an old man who had also come to these shores on a ship, much like the Speedwell. And he tried to help her get to her feet. But finding her dead, he bent down and whispered in her ear these words, Kumbamba, Yale, Kumbumba, Tambi. And hearing these words, she rose, arched her back, and lifted her arms as if they were wings. And with her child in her arms, she flew home. Mm -hmm. And when I was standing there, 
watching the people and when they were dropping the flowers into the water, it was so moving for everyone because these people who came here on those ships, when Shook said that there were 94 people and 74 survived, that was really the, the numbers. About a third were lost. You know, in many years ago, there was a, uh, a hearing in England in the House of Commons, and there was a captain, and his name was William Hunt, I think. And he says, it's, um, it's perfectly impossible to make a slave voyage a healthy voyage. So those people were just dying in large numbers, and it was only for the profit. That was all. Mm. And as uh, Tom Shook uh, relayed to us as well, when you think about uh, the, the legacy of slavery in New England, the fact that New England and New London's farms and fisheries and forests were the enablers and provisioners of these plantations in the Caribbean. Uh, Lonnie, uh, I wanted to bring into the conversation Nicole Thomas, who's assistant site administrator at the Hempstead Houses, three of the 15 stops on the Black Heritage Trail. We're going to learn more about that trail in just a few minutes. But Nicole, first, welcome to the show. And you were also at that ceremony on Amistad Pier in July. What can you tell us and, and respond to what Lonnie shared? Hi, thank you so much for having me. Um, yes, so I was at the ceremony. Um, that ceremony was very moving, very, very moving. Um, and while I did not have as much to do of their actual research as you know everybody else did, being a part of that committee and having something to add to that as somebody who has studied um, local history, has talked about slavery. And, you know, we're, we've been reading between the lines for so long of what these things may have looked like. As Tom mentioned before, um, there were a lot of times where people were hearing about the West Indies trade, but there was not, you know, calling it what it was. And this type of ceremony allows us to reconnect with our ancestors for a lot of people who um, that memory is not so far away, right? Like there are people who have been here. A lot of people at the ceremony, their families have been here for that amount of time. So it really does bring back home. It's almost like being able to say, okay, we've got you. Because to have those names, like Tom mentioned, is very, very rare and it's amazing to be able to just have those conversations and call it what it was today. Mm. Lonnie shared that he grew up in Mississippi. Uh, tell us a little bit about your upbringing, Nicole. When you think about um, as a child, you know, your eagerness to learn the stories and how even your grandmother responded. Yes. Um, so I grew up in New London. A lot of my family has been here for some time and I remember just growing up and not really talking about slavery, racism. I would ask my grandmother questions about, you know, racism and slavery. And she kind of just skirted the conversation. I think it was more a means of protection for me just to not be brought back to that place. And a lot of times, too, she grew up in um, Westerly, Rhode Island, and there were a lot of Italian families. I think a lot of that was, you know, fitting in and doing the best you could together, because when you think about it over time, we have you know, multiple groups of people throughout time that really were not um, invited to stay or not really accepted widely. And so I think people just kind of learned to fit in where they could. And so I think she really meant as a way to protect me, um, keeping those stories from me. And as I got older, I realized same thing in, in local schools, 
curriculums are what they are. And I had zero interest in learning these same things that I had been learning. I know all about, you know, Washington and Jefferson. And I grabbed onto another reality because it didn't feel like I was being taught what would impact me. And so now I make it a point to impact and teach my children and other children. And you're teaching the public as well as assistant site administrator at the Hempstead Houses. Again, I mentioned that this property or properties are part of the stop on the Black Heritage Trail. Uh, tell us about the legacy of abolitionism on Hempstead Street. Yes, um, it, it starts, you know, the Hempstead Historic District, it spans quite a bit of time. As we know, Joshua Hempstead and his family come here, you know, in the 1640s. Well, Joshua himself is born in 1678 and keeps a diary from um, 1670, or I'm sorry, it's from 1711 to 1758, the year of his passing. Throughout that time, you see that he writes, you know, quite a bit of um, Adam Jackson, who was enslaved in the house. And luckily we have those stories today. But as you go on in time and throughout the Black Heritage Trail, Tom took great lengths to go through and bring out the conversation about civilian Haley, who was an abolitionist. There were, of course, Joshua enslaved Adam Jackson there on the Hempstead House property. But throughout time, you do see some of Joshua's descendants becoming abolitionists, you know, teaching schools out of their homes, selling the property where civilian Haley eventually builds homes for free blacks. And those are some of the legacies we have today at the top of Hempstead Street. We have a burial ground that encompasses the legacy of a black governor. And a lot of people are not familiar with that story. I think the entire Hempstead historic landscape just is a story of, of perseverance, of endurance, resilience. And the fact that we don't just come from the legacy of enslavement, we we have prosperity and we can build on that. I think it's important to talk about the legacy of slavery in Connecticut, but we get to be forward, um, you know, moving forward. And that to me is the most beautiful thing. Mm. Lonnie Braxton, respond to what Nicole shared. Yeah, I grew up uh, in a home where history was very, very important. And for some reason, uh, I just, I al- I've always loved history. And Coming to New London, you know, growing up in Mississippi, a state that's relatively new, uh, I'm walking the streets of New London in the 60s, looking at plaques on buildings from the 1700s. You know, history was really alive here every day. And having grown up uh, with people who talked about slavery, and my grandfather uh, would talk about the war, and when he talked about the war, he was talking about the Civil War, not World War I or World War II. And I had the great fortune of running into people uh, like Tom and Nicole and a few others who love history as well. But something I definitely want to make sure we mention is that in uh, Marblehead, Massachusetts, I think it was around uh, 1637, there was a ship built called the Desire. And the Desire went to Africa and it brought slaves back to the Americas and it actually stopped in Connecticut, right here. And it was according to John Winthrop uh, the Younger, the Suffolk-born governor of the new colony, he actually had recorded this in some of his papers. So as uh, Tom was discussing, New London has a long history as does New, uh, New England. But we need to tell these stories because this is all American history. And the more we actually uh, share of this history, I think the, the better the bonds between all of us will become. Mm. Because one of the things I have learned too is the chains of habit are generally too small to be felt until they are too strong to be broken. And that was a quote I think from 
Samuel Johnson or, or one of the Johnsons. And that's what's happened with history. You know, we slowly built habits about how history is told. And over time, when we have to actually look at something differently or hear a different story, we can resist it or think that it's not true. But the old books and the uh, records and the wills and the uh, documents uh, that are contained in the courthouses and libraries and custom houses of this nation can really tell a different story if we only read them and have people who actually go out and explore it. Yeah, this document's so important. We have a question from Susan in Greenwich uh, who asks, you know, have compensation records when slave owners were compensated when slavery was abolished, have those been helpful in IDing local links? I'll start with you, Lonnie. Uh, that's a very interesting question. Uh, he's the first person I've known to actually know that some of the slaves were actually compensated. But most of this compensation took place uh around the time of the Civil War. Lincoln was going to actually pay slave owners to uh, free their slaves. Uh, I have not had the, uh, the good fortune yet of seeing if we could actually trace some of those names uh, from some of the records. I, I haven't, but that's a, I'm jotting that down because I'm going to take a look at that. Thanks. You're hearing Lonnie Braxton II, a historian of Black history, as we learn about how the city of New London is working to acknowledge its connections to slavery, also highlighting the stories of Black residents through New London's Black Heritage Trail. Also with us, Nicole Thomas, assistant site administrator at the Hempstead Houses in New London. Now, the houses are among New England's oldest and best documented dwellings and a site of northern slavery. The properties are part of CT Landmark's statewide network of historic homes. I'll keep speaking with Nicole and Lonnie right after a short break. What questions do you have? You can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. We're talking to local residents today who've been working on New London's Black Heritage Trail. On Zoom, Lonnie Braxton II, a historian of Black history who's been working on this trail. Also with us, Nicole Thomas, assistant site administrator at the Hempstead Houses. These properties part of uh, Connecticut Landmarks. Now, three of the 15 stops on the Black Heritage Trail involve uh, the Hempstead Houses property. You can join us as well. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, I mentioned the three of the 16 stops on the trail, Nicole. And so tell us about what engagement has been like since this trail was unveiled last fall. Um, engagement at the house has really been um, more really phenomenal. And people have been reaching out. They really want to hear these stories. They want to hear more about the resilience. Again, um, you know, at Hempstead, we have the diary of Joshua Hempstead. And, you know, people do come for that. And, and we're really grateful um, for that document, right? Because if we didn't have that, we would not be able to talk about the things that happened in New London. Um, Adam is mentioned and the author of For Adam's Sake, Allegra de Bonaventura, if she didn't pull out these stories, we wouldn't have these conversations. So I think it is really important to highlight that, again, we have started at a place where Adam is enslaved um, and Joshua was writing this document, but people really do come to hear about these stories and they want to know more about 
slavery in New England, but they also want to hear, did Adam, was Adam ever freed? What would his life have been like? And unfortunately, we don't have those types of answers now. But that's part of um, what excites the public. They want to know about how the Hempstead Historic District has moved forward. How are we talking about more prosperity now? People are coming out because they really want to know. And again, sometimes we, we do find that people would like to dismiss you know, we have to stop talking about these things and we can't, we can't, we owe it to those who came before us. We owe it to those who are going to come after us, specifically the youth. And I want people to know that they can grab these things and continue to run and learn new stories. I want to see the public wanting to lead these tours. I want to see people interested in stories that are not already told. And so I do find that people are coming out and they are more open to the things that we haven't talked about in the past. I think the time is now. Again, you can join us here on Where We Live. Anne's calling in from Maine. Anne, what did you want to share? I just wanted to mention that uh, the profound story of New London's linkage with the slave trade and the Caribbean trade uh, is contained partly uh, in a book that I wrote uh, and was published by Wesleyan a couple of years ago in 2014. It's called The Log Books, Connecticut's Slave Ships and Human Memory. And it's based on a set of ship's logs kept by a New Londoner named Dudley Saltonstall, uh, documenting uh, his voyages, two to West Africa, and then one from West Africa to the West Indies. And, it's, and the narrative itself of the law books draws in many other new Londoners and it gives you a uh, sort of a place to stand and understand right. the, the large size of this history and this story. Thank you so much, Anne, for mentioning that book. We appreciate it. Sultan Stahl, Lonnie, correct me if I'm wrong, prominent merchant, also um, enslaved, had enslaved people uh, uh, as part of his property. Uh, this uh, book, the log book, I'm actually holding it in my hand now. It's a great book, and there's a companion book, How the North Promoted, uh, Prolonged, and Profited from Slavery. Uh, it's complicity. It's great. And uh, Black Lives, Native Lands, White Worlds, A History of Slavery in New England, which came out, I think, around 2019 as another great book. Tom mentioned a couple. But in reading this, it's more than just about slavery. You actually see how America started to become wealthy. It is, it is very intriguing. And uh, The Ledger in the Chain uh, is another uh, great book. Mm. And the last one I would mention is Reckoning with Slavery, Gender, Kinship, and Capitalism in the Early uh, Black Atlantic. We'll try to list some of those books that uh, both Anne and you mentioned on our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live. I don't want to run out of time and not have uh, time to talk about some of these other sites on uh, the Black Heritage Trail in New London, Lonnie, that you and so many others work so hard on. And I wondered if you could preview some of the stops, uh, including one involving Linwood Bland Jr. on Franklin Street. Uh, on Linwood Bland, we would need a show about Linwood Bland. Uh, he was a black male who immigrated from North Carolina with his family. He uh, had served in the service uh, in the Navy, and uh, he became head of the NACP. He was a civil rights icon for uh, New London, and he would take up the cause of so many people whose voices were not heard. 
and he was not afraid to stand up and speak. He led demonstrations. He uh, actually protested uh, people not being hired by the fire department, some other things that he did not feel that people of color were getting a fair shake, so he wouldn't pay his tax. And uh, there was a dispute about that. And uh, he wrote a uh, very uh, good book that was one, I think, the bestseller for the London Historical Society called uh, Voices of Change. And uh, he is, he, his site was very, very um, special for me. And uh, his home was restored. There's a family living there now. There's a plaque out front. And with that plaque, uh, I think his name will basically be remembered for a very, very long time. Mm-hmm. Another site we should uh, maybe remember too is the Hotel Bristol. And in World War II, uh, the Hotel Bristol was a place that people of color would frequent and what have you. And there was a riot. Um, and I'm sorry, it's not World War II, this was uh, 1919. And uh, this riot involved uh, the Coast Guard, the subbase, the fire department, and the London police, all hands on deck. Uh, because over 5,000 people surrounded this small place uh, to attack the black folk who were in it uh, based upon a rumor that uh, a couple of black sailors had attacked some white sailors. And it turned out not to be true. But if you go back and you read uh, the history of it, it's it's something that we never knew. It right. happened and just disappeared. And uh, Red Summer uh, was a summer that there were riots all over America. There were Things happening right after World War One because people were asserting their rights. They had fought for this country. They had seen that the world was bigger than just a small place uh, that they were in and that they uh, had fought for these rights and they wanted it. Mm. And it caused quite an upheaval. Uh, thank you for that, uh, Lonnie. And when we think about the 16 stops now on the Black Heritage Trail, tell us plans to expand and any, um, you know, plan to tie in local indigenous history. All of those things are uh, that you're saying are true. Uh, there will be plans to expand. There will be women. Uh, there will be indigenous people. Uh, it is it is history. And history should not just be confined to one group or one person or one idea. And uh, the more we learn, the more we plan to do. And uh, we are hoping to expand the number of people who've been working on this project and uh, that we can hand it one day to someone else and they keep it going. You know, working with Curtis and Nicole and Tom and others and Laura from the uh, landmarks, it's been great. I mean, we are... We all know a lot, but we've also learned a lot, and uh, it's great. I wanted to mention one other uh, stop on this Black Heritage Trail in the city of New London, the Sarah Harris Fairweather, the first black student at Prudence Crandall's boarding school for girls in Canterbury, Connecticut. That's on 90 Broad Street. Uh, so uh, really interesting to see um, you know, the, the wide uh, variety of uh, people that are spotlighted on this trail. Uh, before we run out of time, uh, Nicole, again, who's here, Nicole Thomas uh, with the Hempstead Houses. She's assistant site administrator. When we think about uh, you know, the greater goal, right, to, to bring in an engaged youth and the greater public uh, with this trail uh, to further educate, as Lonnie mentioned, mentioned, a history that people don't know about. Uh, are you excited about further collaboration with New London Public Schools and how this trail could be incorporated, Nicole? Yes, I am very excited about this. Um, I, In the last two years, I have somehow managed to become 
a mini planter and figuring out how to put down seeds. And I realized that not only are these things, um, you know, in my home and what I can do here, but I'm also planting seeds along with my co-researchers around New London, Tom, Lonnie, Laura, Curtis, and I are in um, Felix Reyes, who, you know, has not been mentioned here today, but he was pretty instrumental as well. We're planting seeds. And I think what the goal is, is to almost bring in the next generation of historians. Again, I think we're just planting little parts where people can grab something and run with it. I think we can do that in schools. We can do that in public and in walking tours. We are at a unique um, precipice right now to be telling the truth. And I am just really excited and honored to be able to do the work that my ancestors, you know, tried to do with teaching their own families. We so appreciate you coming on today. Nicole Thomas, again, Assistant Site Administrator at the Hempstead Houses in New London, part of Connecticut Landmarks. Uh, Hempstead Houses, three of the 16 stops on the Black Heritage Trail. Nicole, thank you. Thank you. And to Lonnie Braxton II, a historian of Black history, also one of the local historians uh, who've been working on New London's Black Heritage Trail. Lonnie, a pleasure to have you back. Thank you. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Katie Pellico. Tess Terrible was on the phones today. Our technical director is Kat Pastor. We hope you have a great week. <laughs>